So my name is Jeremy Villanueva. Uh, I serve on our downtown youth ministry team. I grew up in a, the Catholic church. As I went into high school, my parents just kind of gave me the option to, you know, if I wanted to continue going to mass and doing all that fun stuff, sure. If I wanted to maybe go to a different type of church, I can do that as well. And so I had a friend invite me to church with him uh, freshman year of high school, and I started going with him more frequently. And, you know, sometimes it was just kind of, just kind of fun, you know, being with the friends, like what are the friends doing and whatnot. And I just really didn't realize at the time that that environment, that experience that I was getting, though I might not have seen it right then and there, uh, was gonna pay dividends for who I am as a person. I definitely love the Sunday nights that we have with students, whether it's playing the game or getting into the small group. But I think I just view that ministry goes, goes a lot more than that. And that's what I think just kind of allows me to think about the way I keep showing up and the way that I just want to continue yearning and growing and just doing my part to make sure that every student, every person that walks into those doors feels seen. And I just want to show whether it's another co-leader or whether it's a student that I want to create that experience and create that environment that these students are building friendships, building community and learning Jesus through all of that. And I just continue to see how big God really is. Um, just seeing him through the laughs we might have on a Sunday night when we're playing musical chairs or at a soccer game for one of the students. Um, just seeing those, those joys and those delights uh, is really what keeps me going. Hey, can we give it up for Jeremy? Man, it is uh, difference makers like Jeremy that uh, make this uh, place what it is. And I just want to uh, say hello to uh, our church family, uh, where uh, all of our physical locations, those of you joining us online, we're glad to have you uh, today. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app uh, handy, would you go ahead and find Psalm 127? Uh, Psalm 127 is where we're going to be. And today we're beginning a new series of messages called rally cry. And uh, the big idea behind this, it's sort of a continuation of the series we just came out of where really what we want to do in the next four weeks leading up to Easter is we want to rally together around some of the areas of all of our lives that have taken significant hits over this past pandemic year. So areas like uh, family, relationships, marriage, uh, our, our church mission, and uh, a rally cry, the definition of that is a word phrase or idea that brings people together in support of something important or worthwhile. Now, a rally cry is usually what happens when uh, your back is against the wall. So like when the team is down late in the game, the athletes come together at center court or midfield and they rally. When uh, the, the uh, soldiers are on a battlefield and they're surrounded, they come together and they rally. And what we wanna do together as a church family is we wanna to rally together around some of these areas of our lives that have taken hits because all of us are hurting in, in some way. And uh, here's why the next four weeks, I believe, are gonna be so critical for all of our lives. And what I'm gonna say next is um, not easy to say, it's not gonna be easy to hear, it's not something that we hear very often, and it's gonna sound a little bit as welcome as a smack in the face, all right? So I just wanna um, ask you to brace yourself for what I'm gonna say next. Are you braced? That wasn't very convincing, all right? So uh, here's what I wanna say. This is why the next four weeks are so important, all right? Satan hates you. Aren't you glad you came to church today? That's just, 
such a heartwarming message. I mean, we're used to hearing the opposite of that when we come to church. Like we hear all the time, God loves you, but we don't hear very often, if at all, Satan hates you. There's a number of reasons for that. It's not very nice to say, doesn't sound very good to hear. Uh, some of you may not even really fully believe that he exists. Uh, statistically speaking, more people believe in God than they believe in Satan, which I find kind of interesting. And so you may be there like, I don't know if I really believe in that guy. And I would say that from his perspective, he would go, good, I'd rather you not. Like an enemy you don't believe in can cause a whole lot more damage. And so I, I wanna just lovingly say to you, he's real and he's sinister and he hates you and he hates your family, so he wants to get you to turn on each other. And he hates your marriage for sure. He wants to bring that down if you're married. And he uh, hates your relationship, so he wants to divide us. And he for sure hates the message of the gospel, the restoration and redemption and the hope that comes through a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He for sure hates that. So he wants to get you to distort it, deny it, and to doubt it. And so church, it's time for us to rally. And that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. Yeah, that would have been a good place to clap. One person down here had it. All right. We're going to rally. We're going to rally. All right. So uh, today I want to kick things off by uh, rallying around our families. And in particular, I want to talk about um, our kids and uh, maybe grandkids or just the, the future generation of difference makers and world changers that are among us. Now, uh, a lot of this message, it, the application of it is going to be uh, for parents and, and maybe grandparents. I know we got a lot of people that ha have kids or grandkids in our church. And I know that as soon as I say that, like this subject, there's a lot of emotion around it because all of our stories are different and we are all in different seasons of life. And so it might be tempting for you when you hear that this is a message about maybe parenting or grandparenting to uh, maybe want to tune out for just a host of reasons that are very understandable. And you might be like, well, um, I don't have any kids and I don't see kids anywhere in my immediate future. Uh, and so I don't see how this applies. Or maybe you are a kid and you're like, how does a message on parenting apply to me? That's a good, you know, that's a good question. Maybe some of you are here today and you really want kids, but for whatever reason, you just haven't been able to have them. And this is a painful subject. And I want you to know that as I wrote, as I studied and wrote this message, I've been praying specifically for that group of people. I know the pain of that. Lindsay and I went through a season in our lives where we experienced multiple miscarriages and I, I, I know the pain of that. Others of you, maybe you're empty nesters and your kids are kind of grown and gone and you're like, hey, this is fantastic, Aaron. This message is about 18 years too late, all right? So I, I get all that. What I wanna ask you to do is regardless of your specific circumstances, I wanna ask you to hang with me. And this is not a message uh, about my opinions, about parenting or anything like that. We're, we're looking at Psalm 127. We're looking at God's word together. And I guarantee you, regardless of who you are, what your specific situation is, when you open yourself up to what God wants to say to you through his word, there will be a word for you. But I want to talk uh, primarily, like the bullseye of the message, a lot of the application is going to be towards parents. But listen, if you've got nieces or nephews, or you've got kids that live down the street from you, or you are serving in our kids or student ministries or leading a uh, life group for, for teenage boys or girls. If you're mentoring anybody in the next generation, there's gonna be principles that apply. But I wanna kick this off by, by saying this. I just kinda want all of us to kinda take a deep breath of air because the very first thing I want you to know is that there is no such thing as a perfect parent, all right? Nobody 
gets this right. We all mess up in a variety of ways. Now, uh, those of you who don't know me, uh, I've got four kids at home. I've got a, a 18, 16, almost 14, and nine. Help! All right, so uh, just you be praying for me, all right? I mean, I, I am in the thick of it, and uh, I have got lots and lots of experience, uh, but I am not up here to tell you, like, what I do right, so you should do as I do. I'm up here to say, like, I'm right in the thick of it with you, and I make more mistakes than I get right. And uh, in fact, uh, I was just reminded of this. About a week ago, I, uh, my son and I, he's 18, we were at the airport, we're getting ready to fly out, we're at a gate, and I had this memory that I had almost forgotten about a time when he was 10 or 11, and we were flying out of that same gate. And it was on a Sunday afternoon, I just got done preaching a whole bunch of services, and I was tired, and we were at the gate, and he asked if he could go to the candy store and get some candy for the plane. And so I reluctantly gave him some money to do that, and then he came back, and he uh, told me that he forgot to pay for it. So he had the bag of candy and the money. <laughs> and he's like, you just shoplifted a bag of candy, right? Unintentionally. And so I lose it. And I'm, I'm tired. I'm cranky. I didn't want him to go get candy anyway. And so I just start chewing him out right there at the gate. There's all these people around us. And I remember there was this lady sitting right next to us. And she like told me to calm down. Pastor. Right. And like, I don't know if she went to our church or not, but I've always wondered. All right. And uh, and I, so so Connor and I, he's 18 now. And uh, like, we're way past that. And so we're at the gate and I kind of looked over at him and I go, hey, do you remember that time when you went to the candy store and I chewed you out? Like hoping that he would say he had forgotten. Oh, no, no. He he remembered <laughs> in vivid detail. Right. And I'm like, great. You know, that's going to show up in therapy one day, right? Just dad of the year award. So I just want you to know, like no, nobody gets this right. In fact, I wanna do a little pop quiz right now at all of our campuses and those of you online, just so you know, if you're a parent and you're just like, man, I'm struggling. I don't feel like I'm doing this very well. Like there's no such thing as a perfect parent. So pop quiz, just raise up your hand if you uh, are guilty of any of this, all right? How many of you are guilty, just like me? Uh, so it's already hands going up, all right? I haven't even said anything. <laughs> All right, how, how many of you uh, are guilty of just losing your temper and yelling at your kids in public? Anybody? Yeah, just look around, all right, in whatever room you're in. Yeah, that just means you're human, all right? How many of you have been tempted, like you need a good night's sleep and you're so tempted to put a little Benadryl in the sippy cup? Anybody? Just, <laughs> you didn't actually do it. You just thought about it, all right? How many of you, uh, you uh, recognize this? You know what this is? I don't even know technically what that's called, but it like sucks the boogies out. Oh, like... Because, you know, the baby's nostrils are really tiny. All right. Now, how many of you have not had one of these handy? So you put your mouth over the nose and sucked in. All right. Like I may have. Oh, come on. I didn't do it to your kids. Did it to my kids. Totally natural. I felt very bonded to them after. All right. How many of you have ever told your kids that the ice cream truck plays music when they're out of ice cream? Anybody? I might have done that. I really resonate with uh, actress Michelle Pfeiffer when she talks about parenting. She says, like all parents, my husband and I just do the best we can, hold our breath, and hope we've set aside enough money for our kids' therapy. <laughs> uh, on a more serious note, uh, George Barna reported this a few years ago. He said 62% of parents they interviewed defined successful parenting as having done the best they could regardless of the outcomes which tells us that we just kind of feel like we're in over our heads and we're exhausted and there's so many things pulling at us. And how do you even know if you've done a very good job? And so what I want to do today is I want to offer some encouragement uh, in this area 
of influencing the next generation. I want to look at Psalm 127 together. So hopefully I've given you enough time to get there. And it's a really, really short Psalm, but I want to kind of paint uh, the context around uh, why this was written. All right, so it's written by a guy named David. And David did not grow up in an ideal family. In fact, he did not have a good example of a parent. One time uh, his dad like completely overlooked and like forgot about him. I mean, that's the kind of family that David grew up in. And as a result, David takes that legacy and he sort of transfers that forward to his own kids one day. And you know, oftentimes that, that's what ends up happening. All of us have a family of origin in which we learn some things, There are some things modeled to us and we just sort of take those things, maybe without ever really critically thinking about it, and we just kind of transfer that legacy down to our kids. How many of you have ever been maybe uh, lecturing your kids and all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, I sound just like my mom. Oh, I sound just like my dad. Like where in the world did that come from? It's because you're a product of your family of origin, whether you like it or not. And then we have a tendency to sort of uh, transfer that on down to our kids. And this is what happened with David. David, unfortunately, was a bad dad right from the start. He was so passive that he flat out ignored what was going on with his kids at home. In fact, there were several times when the wheels were just completely coming off, but David was checked out and he was afraid to provide leadership for his family, even though he was leading an entire nation. He was respected by everybody across the kingdom, but unfortunately he wasn't respected by his own family at home. Can I say it this way? David was a good king. He's a crummy dad. David was a rock star at work, but he was failing at home. And a couple of examples of this, one time David had a son named Amnon who sexually assaulted one of David's daughters named Tamar. And David found out about it and he didn't do anything. And so his other sons took matters into their own hands and they killed Amnon. That was going on at home. And later on, he would have a son named Absalom who absolutely despised David. Their relationship had deteriorated that much and he tried to dethrone David and get rid of him. I mean, so so David just had a jacked up home life But at the very end of his life, he had one last son named Solomon. And David got a few things right with Solomon. David fathered Solomon, not perfectly, but he fathered him way better than the rest of his kids. And as a result, Solomon took that legacy of faithfulness to God and he passed it down to the future generations of their family tree, leading all the way to Jesus because Jesus comes out of the line of David. And what Psalm 127 is, is it's David singing over his son, Solomon. And there's a few things that we can learn here. Look at what he writes. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Now, what this is, is a picture of a frenzied parent. Like we are trying so hard, burning the candle at both ends to provide for our family, to protect our family, to make sure that they had what we didn't have growing up. And so we've got them in extracurricular activities and sports and we're running around like crazy and yet potentially missing the most important thing. 
that were furiously building a home. And God says, I, I, I need to be invited in to that process. And David goes on and notice all of the descriptions that he, the descriptives that he uses for Solomon. He says, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Now what this chapter does is it provides a vision for parenting that is oftentimes very different for the vision, vision of parenting that, that many of us have, especially uh, Christian parenting or what I might call like Christ-centered parenting. Now, now, David says there's a different goal. There's a different vision for parenting than what we oftentimes have in our mind. Here's what I mean. How many of you had one of these in your homes uh, growing up? Anybody have, uh, maybe your grandparents had one of these? It's a, it's a china cabinet. And uh, the, the purpose of a china cabinet was to uh, keep all of the very valuable, breakable, irreplaceable sometimes items uh, behind these closed doors so that way nothing bad would happen to them. Now oftentimes what ends up happening is that we slip into what we might call china cabinet parenting. In other words, our kids are um, valuable. They are very fragile. They are certainly irreplaceable. And so we sort of fall into this line of thinking that my job as a parent, especially Christian parenting, I think that we're really guilty of this, is like, let's just uh, protect them. We don't want anything bad to happen to them. We don't want them to be contaminated by the darkness of this world. And so we sort of parent like this. It's a very defensive posture. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Yes, that's a big part of our job as parents in the next generation is to protect and to be wise about what we expose them to and when. But if you notice, David didn't say anything about that in this chapter. Instead, he encourages us to a, a higher calling when it comes to our kids. Check out verse four again. He says, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. They're like arrows. Now, there's a lot of things that you can do with an arrow, but keeping it behind closed doors in a china cabinet isn't one of them. Like, can I say it this way? Arrows don't need to be protected. They are something that others need protection from. And God's word is saying that the goal of shaping the next generation, kids, grandkids, nieces and nephews, whatever young person that you might be influencing in your life is to invest in them, not just to keep bad things from happening to them. It is not like a defensive kind of posture around it. It's actually a, an offensive kind of posture where we're saying, no, 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 our job here is to prepare you to be aimed and sent out. To, to, to be to be directed in a certain way, to pierce through the darkness of this world. Could I be as bold as to say it this way, all right? We're not trying to raise kids that need protected from the darkness of the world, but kids the darkness of the world needs protection from. Now, some of you are like, what does that mean? Like we're trying to raise a bunch of vigilantes? Like we're trying to, like a new hybrid, a superhero? Like, no, 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 there's a better word for it. It's called disciples. 
That's what we're trying to do. Young men and women who are sure-footed and they're not perfect, but they're following after Jesus in every area of their life. And we've set them up well. We're not doing this with them. Like, I just got to keep all the bad things from happening to you. But no, I'm actually aiming you in a direction. And eventually they're going to be sent out and we want them to be sent out to pierce the darkness, to make a difference in this world, in the kingdom of God. And what Psalm 127 does is it provides a framework for us in how to do that imperfectly, but we want to do that. So let me just start off with, uh, by uh, kind of sharing a couple things from this chapter that can help us do this. And I want to lead with this question right here. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy do you want to leave on your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, the next generation that you may be influencing? And some of you may be uh, building a business and that's going to be part of your legacy that you want to maybe pass down to your family. Maybe some of you are um, building a legacy of accomplishment. Maybe some of you are trying to build a legacy of wealth. Now listen, there's, none of those things are bad. In fact, all those things are good. But what Psalm 127 really challenges us to, to do is to see our kids and the next generation as our greatest legacy. Like 100 years from now, somebody else is gonna be living in the home that you are making mortgage payments on right now. Somebody else is gonna have all of your assets. Nobody is likely going to remember your name. Nobody's gonna remember that I was a pastor at Traders Point Church, but hopefully there'll be uh, some brockets running around 100 years from now on down from my family line that will be influenced by how I directed my immediate family. And today, some of you need the challenge and some of you need the encouragement that here's the paradigm shift that maybe we need to have today is that your greatest accomplishment for the kingdom of God might not be something that you do, but someone that you raise or you influence. And as soon as I say that, that might hit you emotionally in a variety of different ways. Some of you might agree. Some of you are like, yep, that's right. That's what I'm trying to do. Some of you, Maybe there's a little bit of guilt, maybe just a tinge of, of shame when you read that because you're not quite sure you're doing that or you're not quite sure you've done that. And this is where this can kind of prematurely hijack the message that God wants you to hear today because we realize all of our own inadequacies. And there's a, a myth that many of us have bought into as parents, and I would say, uh, specifically as, as Christian parents, that we really kind of need to blow up. And the myth, interestingly enough, came from a guy named B.F. Skinner, who was a Harvard psychologist in the 1960s. And he developed a theory called radical behaviorism, which teaches that children are blank slates and they are 100% shaped by their environment. So as a result, here was his parenting equation, all right? Good environment equals good children. So you do everything you can to create a good environment at home. You make sure they're safe. You make sure they've got enough food. You make sure they've got clothes, all emotionally healthy, all that. It's going to equal good children. And I'm not even saying that there's uh, nothing, uh, that that's wrong. I'm just saying that he's missing something. Because what we've done is uh, we've taken that equation and we've sort of... Uh, Christianized it and it's actually hurting some of us. And here's the Christianized version of that equation. Godly parenting will always equal godly children. 
So we're like, you know, if, if I do everything I can to create a godly environment at home, it's going to create godly children. And if not, then I must have done it wrong or I must have not gotten it right. We've even co-opted a verse for this. Do you know what it is? Proverbs 22, verse 6, direct your children onto the right path. And when they are older, they will not leave it. And we've heard that verse and actually that causes some pain and some guilt in your life, especially if you're an empty nester and you did everything you could to raise your child to follow after Jesus and maybe they're not. And you're like, I, what, did, what did I do wrong? See, here's what I want you to know is that that verse is found in the book of Proverbs, not the book of promises. These are wisdom principles for how life generally works out, not promises for how life will always work out. Can I just show you an example of this from the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 3, whenever Adam and Eve fell into sin. Let, let's look at that equation. You had a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, plus perfect children, Adam and Eve. At that point, they had no sin nature. They hadn't done anything wrong yet. Plus a perfect parent, God the Father, still equaled rebellion. And so for many of us, maybe you did everything you thought you knew to do. And what the Bible is showing us is that your children are born with something that just messes everything up. Free will which means you can do everything possible to be the best godly parent available. You know, you give them all the right opportunities. You take them to church every week. You read Bible stories to them. You try to teach them lessons. You try to be as authentic as you can. And listen, at, at, at some point, even those of you who got multiple kids, maybe they grew up in the same home, the same environment, and their, their lives took dramatically different paths. And so now you're left with like, well, did I do something wrong? I got four kids at home. It is amazing how similar they all are and yet how different they all are. And one of the things that I, I'm just having to, to learn is that I've got to parent, there's not like a one size fits all. I've got to parent them in unique ways because they are individuals. And so this whole idea here uh, means two things. You shouldn't take too much credit when things go well with your kids and you can't take on too much blame if things don't. And see, if you don't grasp this, then you might parent through a tremendous amount of pressure, fear, or guilt. And then when your kids grow up and leave, you'll either have too much guilt or too much pride. Now, with that said, here's the, the good news. And this is what I'm trying to say is what the Bible is showing us is that as a parent, you have zero control over what your kids do with their lives, but you have tremendous influence. And influence is far better than control. And what we want to do uh, as early as possible in the game is we want to trade the control that we think we might have for the influence that only we have. And that's the question that I want to camp out on just in the remainder of our time. I want to bring you uh, your attention back to those incredible descriptive words that David wrote of Solomon in Psalm 127. He says, Solomon, you are a gift. You're a reward. You're a blessing. You are like an arrow. This is David singing over his son. And this is so key because I think that for, for many of us, 
We, we've sort of thought that our job as a parent is maybe to protect them and to sort of discipline them. You know, if they get out of line, we got to keep them in line. And what this psalm is showing us is that delight always comes before discipline and within the context of discipline. It's kind of like, uh, ever watch one of those shows where it's maybe like a swordsmith or they're trying to shape something out of steel? What do they do with the steel first before they shape it? They heat it. So that way it's malleable enough to be shaped. And I would say that this is how delight and discipline work is that if you don't delight in your kids before you provide a context of discipline, you won't shape them, you'll break them. And that delight in our children heats their hearts so that way they are shapeable. And so God models this with the one audible sentence that he spoke to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. He said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This was a statement of delight. And so what I want to encourage you to do is I want to focus us on how do we delight in our kids so that way we, that we heat their hearts so that we can shape them towards the person that Jesus desires for them to be. And our culture just does not encourage us to view children in this way, as a, as a delight. Our, our culture disciples us or trains us in many ways, uh, whether it, it may even just be sort of indirectly that they are sort of um, inconveniences, expensive inconveniences at that. And so as a result, um, less and less people are choosing to have kids now more so than any other uh, group of people in history. You know, I've got uh, four kids at home, so we're a a relatively large family. And every now and then I'll I'll get this sense. I remember one time several years ago uh, when my kids were a little bit younger and we were out and uh, Lindsay needed to run into the store to get something. And we said, instead of all of us going in, I'll just stay outside. There's like a little lawn area outside the store. I was like, I'll just stay here and just watch the kids while you run in real quick. And they're kind of running around acting crazy. And there's this uh, older lady by herself walking down the sidewalk and she walked and she stopped and she looked at at us and then she looked at me and this is what she said. She goes, those aren't all yours, are they? (laughs) It's kind of an interesting way to say it. And I was just like, "Uh, they're not a rash. I mean, it's like, like, uh, yeah, they're, they're mine. And no joke, this is what she said. She goes, you do realize what causes that? And I was like, oh, I'm very well aware. My wife can't keep her hands off me. All right, it's like, I, I know, I know. But as she walked away, I was like, this, she kind of made me feel like she had just caught me littering or something. Like that I had just done something to kind of make the you know, environment, like to contribute to the, uh, the uh, environment going down the tubes or something like that. And it's just like, it's like sometimes, I mean, just think about how we often, how our culture oftentimes talks about kids as if they're an inconvenience. On a much more serious note, Tragically, there are 40 to 50 million abortions done across the world every single year. And one of the top reasons given, tragically, is the word inconvenience. Now, can I just say this? Uh, Do children cause inconveniences? Yes. Sleep deprivation for one. Those of you that have got really, really little kids, babies at home, you look, I say this with all love, you look like you just got released by ISIS. Right, you are just walking around, sleep deprived. There is weight gain. You got to trade in the sports car for the minivan that forever smells like Cheerios. Oh, yeah. 
Can we talk car seats for a minute? Every now and then somebody would go, Pastor, I have never cussed. It's because you never put in a car seat. Or just <laughs> put in a car seat and you'll drop several four-letter words. You, you, think, you think that diapers and baby food is expensive? Just wait till they go to college. Somebody told me that uh, paying for your kid's college is like purchasing a brand new BMW every single year. and Pushing it off a cliff. That's what that is. <laughs> So do children cause inconveniences? Yes, but what glorious inconveniences they are. David says they are a delight. They are a reward. They are a blessing. They are like arrows that have been entrusted to us so that we shape their future as they are released out into this world. So let me get real, real practical in the remainder of our time is that we want to delight in the next generation. And delight has to be demonstrated. You can't just internally go, oh, of course I love my kids. No, it's got to be demonstrated. Have you ever heard this from your own parents? Your dad is really proud of you. He just doesn't show it. Your mother really loves you. She just doesn't say it. Can I just tell you that's bogus? And I'm so sorry. They need to show it and they need to say it and you need to show it and you need to say it and you need to learn to have fun and laugh with your kids at every age. And some of us, and I know I got three teenagers at home and it's easy to kind of go, well, you know, we used to get on the ground and wrestle together and have so much fun, but you know, kind of, you know, not anymore. It's like, well, you don't need to get on the ground and wrestle with them now, but you need to learn to have fun in the way that they'll have fun now at every age. Learn to connect with them in ways, listen, that they feel connected to. Don't just try to get them to do the thing that you want to do. One author said, a child spells love, T-I-M-E. And man, I'm just always looking for opportunities. I don't do it very uh, uh, perfectly, but I'm always looking for opportunities just to create these memories or these experiences. Uh, uh, several weeks ago, my youngest daughter, Cadence, she really wanted to go to Hoosier Heights and do the rock climbing wall. And so we showed up, it was on Saturday afternoon, but we couldn't get in due to all the restrictions. And so she was so bummed and disappointed. And I looked at her and I was like, well, we could just go home or I could create a memory. And I was like, hey, honey, I've got a key to the auditorium at church. And so we came over here and we climbed back through the guts of this building. We climbed out onto this rafter. I think it's illegal for us to do this, but we did it. And we like got way out here and trying to create this like memory and experience, just, just me and her. I'm just always looking for those moments. Now, could I go another layer of application and say to delight in your kids, listen to me, means that you won't put them last. And I think this applies to both moms and dads, but I think that the application here probably falls more towards the dads with that statement. Listen, fathers, your boss can get a new employee, your company can get a new CEO, your buddies can get a new fourth for the golf tournament, but your kids cannot get a new dad. And what God's word is calling you to do is to make your home your first calling and priority. They need you. Uh, the next application is to delight in your kids means that you won't necessarily put them first. And this obviously applies to both moms and dads, but could I say that, that oftentimes maybe, maybe it's, it's the moms that, that need to hear this the, the most. The primary way that this often happens is our, our kids, maybe, maybe, maybe it's God and then kids and then spouse. Every now and then, if you're married, every now and then I'll be maybe talking to a family and, and I'll see this where they, it's, a, it's a mom and a dad and they've got kids running around and, and he says something and she sort of shoots him a look 
Or she sort of shushes him and then she says, oh, it's okay, he knows where he stands. My babies always come first. Can I just say that one of the best things that you can do for your kids is to prioritize your marriage over your relationship with them. Like one day they are going to leave and move on and you're gonna be there with your spouse if you're married. And so I, I know, and I'm not talking about like uh, abuse or dysfunction in marriage. I'm just talking about a reminder that it needs to be God. If you're married, then it's your spouse, then it's your kids, and then it's your work responsibilities. Listen, one of the things, your kids need you to be the type of parents that if they saw what was going on in your bedroom, it would scar them for life. We, we need more Pentecostal bedrooms, right? Lots of tongues and laying on of hands, all right? In, in Jesus' name, all right? And listen, if that offends you, you can email rbramlett at tpcc.org. He would love to hear about it, all right? Hey, here's the next. Uh, delight has to be declared, all right? Delight has to be declared. You, you, gotta, you gotta tell them. Like you, you know that whenever you're criticized, you, you might be encouraged uh, nine times, criticized once. What do you remember? You remember the criticism. And so this is an opportunity to speak blessing into the lives of your kids in the next generation. You're calling things out in them that maybe they can't yet see for themselves. And you say, you know what, man, you are really good at that. And you know what? I think God's got big plans for your life. You have no idea how a simple statement like that might completely change the trajectory of a young person's life. And I speak from experience. I grew up a shy, timid kid, had no aspirations, dreams, or desires. And there was a, one of my really good friends, his dad was one of the best leaders that I, that I knew. And I would oftentimes go over to his house in grade school and I'd walk in and this was where I would often find him. I would see him in the kitchen and he had one of those like orange juice makers and he was constantly squeezing fresh orange, orange juice. And I would walk in and he would look up and he would go, well, I'm like in the fifth grade. And he would go, Aaron Brockett, there's the next world changer. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and, and, and my friend would be like, dad, I told you to stop calling my friends world changers. It's embarrassing, right? <laughs> and can I tell you, fast forward to 14 years ago that it was that man that gave this church my name. See, there is, there is uh, something, you don't underestimate the power of your voice in the life of your kids and in the life of a young person. Can I say that this is the function and the power of our uh, kids and student ministries? Is that what we wanna do is not take your job as the primary discipler in your home, because that's only yours. Listen, you're not outsourcing spirituality to your kids by bringing them here. You don't drop, you know, you drop your car off to get service. Well, I'm gonna drop my kids off, so you give them Jesus. No, that's your responsibility. What we wanna do is come alongside of you and to equip you and encourage you to do what God has called you to do best, which means that we'll come alongside and say some things to your kids and your students that maybe you've been telling them, but they're gonna hear it differently from another adult. And we're gonna speak blessing into their life. And I wanna encourage you to take advantage of the resources and the ministries that are here for students and kids, because that's what we're desiring to do. We wanna help you do what God has called you to do best. Let me give you one last one. Is that discipline needs to come from love and not anger or impatience. You need to discipline, but wait until you calm down. 
Wait until you have enough patience so that way it doesn't get convoluted. You don't want your child equating discipline with anger or discipline with impatience. Then it, they just, you just miss the opportunity to shape their hearts. See, once we heat their hearts with delight, we shape their hearts with discipline. And by discipline, I mean what one author writes about it. He says, no one has ever soared very high, lasted very long, achieved very much, or run very straight without it. Discipline in your life is an indispensable tool. It will serve them well if you equip them with disciplines like strong work ethic, good study habits, sound money management, leadership skills, how to treat your body, how to treat other people, good manners, the discipline of putting the pain before pleasure, decision-making, conflict resolution, how to have a consistent time of personal worship, Bible study, and prayer, the discipline of solitude, gratitude, and servanthood. And at the end of the day, Listen, your kids have a sin nature just like you. And they're going to make mistakes. And in those times, we need to show them that same gospel-shaped love that our Heavenly Father has shown us. To show them that our delight in them is not based upon their performance, their achievement, or even their obedience that your number one job as a parent is to spend your entire life proving to your kids, listen, you cannot outsend my love. I will always be there for you. Just as our heavenly father in Christ says, you cannot outsend my love for you. And as I land the plane today, there might be a little bit of heaviness in the room right now. Maybe, maybe a little bit of guilt, maybe a little regret, Maybe a little shame. Maybe the realization that you're not doing some of this. Maybe the regret that your kids are kind of grown and gone and you didn't do any of this. Maybe when your kids were young, you weren't walking with Christ. And so you didn't point them to him either. And now that they're grown and gone, you're left thinking, well, I, I didn't leave them with a very good spiritual legacy. Or I was too busy building my career, or I was too preoccupied with my struggling marriage, or I was too critical or too judgmental or too demanding. I guess I'm a failure. And your self-critic will go into overdrive and it'll say things like, you're a horrible mom, or you're a bad dad, or you're screwing up your kids. You forced them to eat too many vegetables. You should have sent them to public school or private school or homeschool. You, you should have let them stay up later. You should have gotten up earlier and made them breakfast. You'll never be enough. They're gonna resent you one day. God's word says that Satan is an accuser. And what that means is that he wants to put you on trial every second of your life in an effort to condemn you. So can I speak some words of hope and can I speak some words of good news, maybe into those places of despair? Listen, moms and dads, you don't need to be your child's savior. They already have one. And here's a promise. You cannot mess up your kids so much that Jesus cannot redeem them. Your child's salvation is not dependent upon how good of a job you do. It is dependent upon how good of a savior he is and what a glorious savior he is. And maybe your kids are grown and gone and out of the house and maybe they're not walking with the Lord and you gave it everything you had and you've got so many regrets and you feel like it's your fault. Can I just encourage you with this? 
I don't think we think about this often enough. You know that Jesus didn't have any kids, but he had 12 disciples who acted like kids at times. And one of them went completely rogue and totally betrayed him. So does that mean that Jesus himself wasn't a very good disciple maker? No. And if one of your kids right now is making some poor decisions, that doesn't mean that you failed as a parent. It means you're human. And your children right now do not need perfect parents. They need authentic sinner parents who are willing to acknowledge that sin, to be teachable themselves, and to continually turn away from that and run towards your own savior as a model for what your kids can do as well. Your job is not to be a perfect parent, but it is to introduce them to the only perfect parent they will ever have. And that is their heavenly father. And so today we, we lean on him and we recognize now more than ever that we need to invest into the next generations for what God desires to do in and through them. That they would be sent out like arrows piercing through the darkness of this world. And we need to cry out and ask God to help us with that task. And so today it begins right now. I really do believe that there's gonna be a family or a, um, a parent this is gonna change your life because right now you're just gonna put a stake in the ground and say like, no more. Like my, my business isn't gonna come first. My accomplishments aren't gonna come first. My wealth amassment isn't gonna come first. It's gonna be my kids, it's gonna be my spouse, it's gonna be my family. And today that might mean that you need to give your life to Jesus or re-surrender your life to Jesus. And if that's the case, you could text the word Jesus to 87221 and our team will follow up with you right where you are. And so now in these remaining moments, I'm gonna pray and then we're, gonna, we're just gonna cry out together. At, at, wherever you may be gathered right now, we're just gonna cry out, we're gonna sing to our heavenly Father. Father, we come to you right now and God, I just, speaking as an inadequate dad, I come to you and I just cry out that we need your grace. We need the hope of salvation that can only come in and through our relationship with you. So Father, right now, if there is a mom or a dad that is really struggling, they feel in over their head, they feel exhausted, they feel overwhelmed, they, they feel like they're condemned with shame and regret. God, I just ask that you'd free them today, that they would feel the warmth of your love and recognize that there is hope and that there is redemption that comes through the name of Jesus. And so we claim that, we sing that, we run to that. And so Father, we wanna be a church that recognizes that our task is to raise up a new generation of Jesus followers that will push back the darkness of this world and advance your kingdom coming. And so we lean on you because we're imperfect. And we thank you for your grace. So hear our voices, hear our cries right now as we sing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.